According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Turn, if you would, with me to Proverbs, and this time we're going to Proverbs chapter 17. How about that? Proverbs chapter 17. Seems like forever that we were in chapter 16. It was really only 19 classes, which was down from the 21 lessons we taught in chapter 15, and the peak was 24 classes in chapter uh, 14. So we have really ramped up. Um, Really, there was an acceleration once we got to chapter 10. 10, 11, 12, 13 were all higher than anything in 1 through 9. But then really, 14, 15, 16 seems to have been on on a slower pace. So anyway, I've been giving that to the Lord and praying about it asking for his grace in uh, in moving forward the poetry is is uh pretty comparable in these later chapters i don't know that it's getting any more difficult so uh we'll just trust in the lord's faithfulness to get us through all right proverbs chapter 17 this morning better is a dry morsel now i'm getting hungry better is a dry morsel and quietness with it than a house full of feasting with strife all right so what do you want you want a dry morsel just uh, whole wheat toast, dry? Or uh, do you want a feast? Well, if, uh, if it's going to come with strife, you can keep your feast. Well, I'll take the dry toast and we'll just take it from there. And that's what verse 1 is talking about. All right, before we do begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Ask our Father's blessing upon our time in His Word. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this morning and the truth of your word, the blessing we have to assemble together to receive instruction. Father, I thank you for this midweek service and uh, the blessing that it is to to assemble before you, to open the Proverbs, to glean your wisdom. Thank you, Father, for the timeless truth that is contained in every one of these, uh, every verse of this book. I just thank you and praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. So chapter 17 begins with a better than proverb, a better than proverb, similar to two previously seen in chapter 15. And so we'll kind of pick our brains a little bit and try to remember the things that we studied back related to the better than proverbs. Now, proverbs tend to come in parallelism, tend to have either antithetical or synthetic or other kinds of parallelism, whereby you have an A statement and you have a B statement. And a lot of times it's A but B as a contrast or it's A and B in a a progression, in an agreement. Um, Here though, uh, with the better than Proverbs, we actually have uh, comparisons that are being made. And in some cases they are comparisons that that really um, grab your attention in, in powerful ways because other than the point they're making, these aren't true, right? <clears throat> Obviously... A feast is better than a dry morsel in, in almost any circumstance imaginable. Uh, that when, uh, what would make a dry morsel better than a feast? Well, this is the one case. This is the, the, the power of this comparison is showing you really the, the horrible aspect of strife and the blessings of peace that we have with the Lord. And we'll be discussing these, these issues here shortly. So let's turn back and remind ourselves of what we looked at in chapter 15 when we encountered these previously. 
verse 16, better is a little with fear with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and turmoil with it. So there's your contrast, and it's a better than. And so if you take away the circumstances and you take away the conditions, all you're left with is a comparison of being poor versus being rich, of having little, all right, and uh, or great treasure. So which would you rather have? Would you rather have uh, a bank account that's overdrawn and the, and the creditors coming to you trying to recoup their their losses, or would you rather have a fat bank account with you know millions? Well, you know, all other things being equal, it's kind of a dumb question. There's nobody in the world that that <clears throat> would rather be overdrawn in debt, uh, in, or you know, have a net worth of, of Bill Gates or something like that. So all other things being equal having those resources is, is, is a blessing. The, the grace provision, God knows we need finances. That's, uh, that's a, a given in life. And, uh, and that, but then when you see the, the connection then, what gets linked to it, the fear of the Lord, can you put a price on that? See? And that's the contrast then. That's what takes this otherwise stupid comparison and flips it on its head and turns it absolutely backwards. And so great treasure and turmoil with and turmoil with it. And so this is the parallelism then that, that flips it upside down and makes it a no-brainer the other direction. That obviously uh, the fear of the Lord and not having the fear of the Lord, you can't put a price tag on that. And the turmoil that comes with it, um, crazy. All right, and then the vegetarians and the issues here in verse 17. I remember had some fun with that. Uh, vegetable dish or the fattened ox. Okay. The vegetables or the fattened ox. And realize what Proverbs is portraying here. Proverbs is saying it's a no-brainer that meat is better than vegetables. Okay, Unless you put this component in here where we're contrasting love and hatred. So better is a dish of vegetables where love is than a fattened ox served with hatred. All right, so if it's going to be a thing of hatred, well then, okay, I'll take the vegetable plate. Uh, but all other things being equal, the, the, the meat would be preferable to the vegetables. So that's uh, the format, that's the, the, the concept, the philosophy behind the better than Proverbs. So when we come to Proverbs 17 and we see the dry morsel versus the house full of feasting, uh, yeah, it's obvious uh, until you realize that the real contrast here is quietness versus or tranquility versus strife. And at that point, uh, it flips it around the other direction. So subpoints then, uh, subpoint A, all other circumstances being equal, a house full of feasting is better than a dry morsel. All other circumstances being equal. A house full of feasting is better than a dry morsel. A house full of feasting, which not only contrasts the food, but also contrasts the company and the, and the entertainment and the enjoyment uh, that comes if you, if you have a house full of feasting. That means that you've got family and friends and others that, that are able to celebrate with you in the, uh, the feasting event, not just the, the feasting uh, substance, the food, but the event that goes with it. If uh, if your old mother Hubbard though, and the cupboard is bare, or all you've got is the is the uh, the dry morsel, 
if the dry morsel is the only bit of food in the house, then uh, it's not much of a feast, and it's not really a festival-type uh, circumstance. You don't, your friends aren't going to stick around very long if, if, if all of you are going to be splitting that dry morsel, that, uh, that uh, whole wheat toast uh, dry. <laughs> okay? I used to have a customer. When I was back in my waiter days, I had this lady, and that was her order every morning. She would walk in, and she wanted whole wheat toast dry and a cup of decaf coffee. And, and you'd see her walking across the parking lot, and you just knew, all right, here she comes, whole wheat toast, dry, co- uh, decaf coffee. And usually, if you saw her ahead of time, you could have it at her table before she got to her table and uh, impress her with different things. Anyway, um, but I mean, I just thought, really? Dry? Whole wheat toast? No butter? No jam? Nothing? Just, okay. Right, and so there you go. Uh, I'd rather have a house full of feasting, unless... We have to we ruin it with the uh, the strife as opposed to the quietness. That's the issue. So some point B then, quietness is so superior to strife that it can make a dry morsel superior to a house full of feasting. That's the that's the ratio. That's the that's the the principle behind this type of proverb. Quietness is so superior to strife that it can make a dry morsel superior to a house full of feasting that uh, you'll, you'll, you'll take that instead because it's worth it to you. It's absolutely worth it to you to have the quietness instead of the strife. And so when it comes to the cost, when it comes to the price you'll pay for something, that's the cost. That's, the, that's what it's worth to you because uh, otherwise the cost is, uh, is, is unthinkable. Uh, the price is, uh, is unacceptable to, to accept that kind of uh, strife. So quietness is so superior to strife that it can make a dry morsel superior to a house full of feasting. And that's uh, really the, the impact here of Proverbs 17 and verse 1. It preaches itself, really, when it comes right down to it. I do, though, want to spend some time discussing this aspect of quietness uh, because quietness can become an idol and you can actually turn it into a, uh, a tranquility lust. Colonel Thiem taught it as the, as the tranquility lust. And uh, we want to be on guard against that. So subpoint C is the Hebrew vocabulary for this quietness or this ease. The, and it's not a very common term. In fact, it's pretty obscure. Only with eight Old Testament uses. That's practically nothing in a, in a, in a text the length of the Old Testament. Eight uses in the Old Testament. And yet it seems that all eight uses are extraordinary. All eight uses have, have a um, grab our attention in different ways. So the, the word is shalva, S-H-A-L-V-A-H, shalva. And uh, the Strong's number is 7982, like I say, with eight Old Testament uses. And it does speak of quietness or ease. It speaks of um, like a, a carefree kind of life, the life of ease, the life of quietness. And it is a blessing. It's a blessing when it comes with God's peace. It's a blessing when it comes with God's shalom. And the linking of shalom with shalva is, uh, is significant. And it's, it's put that way in the parallelism of Psalm 122 and verse 7 or uh, aspects here that we have in Proverbs 17 and verse 1. But when you have God's peace, then, uh, then the quietness, the ease is a good thing. Psalm 122 and verse 7, I think, lays this out for you. Psalm 20, 122 and verse 7. Psalm 122 is a song of ascents that would sing this on their pilgrimage up to the temple. It's a song of David. 
And uh, everyone, of course, is familiar with verse 6. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. And if you ever want to spark a discussion, (laughs) ask, what is the church age application of Psalm 122 and verse 6? What is the church age application of pray for the peace of Jerusalem? Is that an imperative that we are under? And if so, how do we apply it? And what is our mandate? And what shalom should we be praying for when Israel is in the land in unbelief? When uh, even, uh, you know, we're thrilled that, that Benjamin Netanyahu was reelected last night, and I think he's a marvelous prime minister. I want him to get saved. That's, that's the, my biggest prayer for him. In, uh, of course, he'd never get reelected again, but that's all right. <laughs> uh, I'd rather have him get saved and go to heaven. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. And so we got shalom in verse 6. Shalom comes back in verse 7. May peace be within your walls and shalva. Now the word that we have for quietness in uh, Proverbs 17.1 is translated as prosperity in Psalm 122 and verse 7. But it's the same shalva. So may peace be within your walls, may shalom be within your walls, and may shalva be within your palaces. And this is the poetry of this verse. So when we have God's shalom, then we can also celebrate God's shalva. We are truly prosperous. And we're prosperous regardless of uh, how much money is in the bank. We have, you could be poor as a church mouse and be heavenly wealthy related to the peace and prosperity that God provides us in his uh in his uh program all right so peace peace and prosperity within your palaces for the sake of my brothers and my friends i will now say may peace be within you for the sake of the house of the lord our god i will seek your good and this is uh the grace that we have there you all right all right so It's a blessing when it comes with God's peace. Otherwise, what I'm calling a pseudo-quietness, see, Satan will give you a version of this that replicates what God provides, but you don't want any part of it, okay? When Satan is counterfeiting something, there's strings attached. When Satan's counterfeiting something, it's not really what he wants you to think it is, even if you call it that. Even if you call it that, right? Like if you call it happiness, are you really happy? Well, Satan calls it that. The world calls it that. Um, same thing with this quietness. Pseudo-quietness is a carnal complacency. It is a carnal complacency. And it becomes an idol. It actually becomes a control factor in your life. There are people that would rather just not rock the boat and so they'll go along to get along and they want to have a, a, a quietness They want to have a stability, but it's not God's stability, and it's not God's quietness, and it's not God's perfect peace. It's uh, the compromise with with the devil, and it'll bite you every time. You don't want any part of it. And even Proverbs warns about it in Proverbs 1.32. And this is one of those cases where vocabulary doesn't help you because it's the same shalva terminology, whether it's used in a good way or it's used in a bad way. It's like fear. You can have a godly fear and you can have a carnal fear. It's the same Hebrew word. It's like jealousy. You can have a godly jealousy or a carnal jealousy. It's the same Hebrew word. So same with shava. I'm sorry, with shalva, you can have a a godly shalva and we want to. 
when it comes with shalom, when it comes as God provides it, great, I have the ease and tranquility that comes from really the faith rest life. I am at ease when I'm with the Lord. So I have that quietness when I'm under his wings, see. But the pseudo quietness is a carnal complacency. And we're warned about it in Proverbs 1 and verse 32. The waywardness of the naive will kill them. The complacency of fools will destroy them. The complacency of fools <clears throat> will destroy them. And so in Proverbs 1.32, Shalva is translated as complacency. So you see the problem or you see the, the application? It should be pretty, pretty simple. When you're looking at Shalva, places where it's translated as complacency, we don't want that. We don't want to be complacent. We want to be, uh, we want to be quiet. We want to have the quietness or the ease. So uh, again, it's probably just worth you know, writing them down side by side or looking at them side by side. Proverbs uh, 1.32 and Proverbs 17.1. And just put them up there side by side. You ever do that? Stare at two verses side by side and say, hmm, how do I, you know, they're both true. You ever do that? Let me show you. And I'll even, uh, we'll take off the, no, we'll leave it on. Proverbs one thirty two and Proverbs seventeen one. Of course, this is what we're looking at this morning. Better is a dry morsel and quietness with it than a house full of feasting with strife. So there's our quietness. Okay, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. That's what makes a dry morsel better than feasting. Shalva is a good thing, translated quietness. But in Proverbs one thirty-two, Shalva is translated complacency. So which is it? Is it complacency or is it quietness? Both, right? It's the same Hebrew word. But it comes down to at what price am I Am I claiming this quietness? What, what, how am I obtaining this complacency? Why am I quiet? Am I quiet before the Lord in a faith rest? Is that why I'm quiet? Or am I complacent? Am I quiet because I've surrendered in the angelic conflict and I'm allowing the world's way of thinking to lull me into a sense of ease, into a sense of... Uh, because right now, uh, you know, Satan and his minions are are uh, kind of throwing the flowery petals out there in front of me to, to, lull, to lull me into a complacency. And then you start to kind of crave that. You start to think, yeah, this is pretty good. This is kind of, I'm, I'm doing all right. I'm okay. And so complacency, then what happens? You get sloppy. You get lazy. You, get, uh, you stop hungering after the Word of God. You, you don't, it's, it's the enemy of diligence. How can you be diligent to pre- present yourself approved if you're complacent? See? Anyway, so take a look at those verses side by side and realize they're both, uh, they're both shalva. We want to have the good shalva, not the bad shalva. Like we want to have the, the righteous fear of the Lord, not the carnal fear of the Lord, uh, not the carnal fear. We want to have godly anger and not sinful anger, godly jealousy and not sinful jealousy. We want to have godly shalva and not sinful shalva. 
which means we want to have the quietness of faith rest, not the complacency of worldly thinking. How about Jeremiah twenty-two twenty-one? Another version of carnal shalva. Thus says the Lord in regard to Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. All right, Jeremiah 22, and Jehoiakim is being rebuked. Son of Josiah, king of Judah. Remember, Josiah was the last good king that Judah had. Uh, from Jehoiakim on, they were, they were wicked kings on to the exile. So they will not lament for him, alas, my brother, or alas, sister. They will not lament for him, alas, for the master, or alas, for his splendor. He will be buried with a donkey's burial, dragged off and thrown out beyond the gates of Jerusalem. Well, that's pretty sad. <laughs> you know, print that in the newspaper. Go up, well, print it in the Bible. That way it lasts forever. Go up to Lebanon and cry out and lift up your voice in Bashan. Cry out also from Abarim, for all your lovers have been crushed. I spoke to you in your prosperity. Now, this is the term. I spoke to you in your shalva. So do you think he had the godly shalva of quietness? That makes dry morsels better than feasting? Or did he have the carnal shalva of complacency and prosperity? That's exactly what he had. I spoke to you in your shalva, in your complacent, prideful prosperity, but you said, I will not listen. You know? Why should you listen? Why should you listen to the Lord? You don't need, what do you need God for? You got money to solve everything. Okay? What do you need? You know, so. This is the arrogance that comes with this kind of complacency. You said, I will not listen. This has been your practice from your youth that you have not obeyed my voice. Think about it. He had a chance. He grew up, Josiah was his dad. He had some of the best, uh, he had a good high priest, he had prophets, he had a, a godly king for a father. And he has been, he's been arrogant from his childhood that you have not obeyed my voice the wind will sweep away all your shepherds and your lovers will go into captivity then you will surely be ashamed and humiliated because of all your wickedness you who dwell in lebanon nested in the cedars how you will groan when pangs come upon you pain like a woman in childbirth all right this is not a man that's ever lived and walked the face of this earth that wants to experience the pains of childbirth I'll tell you that so that that's a threat that's a threat right there, and that's supposed to get your attention. All right, how about Ezekiel 16, 49? Ezekiel 16, 49. Ezekiel 16 is kind of an R-rated chapter. In fact, if you're, if you're going to let your children read this, make sure they understand certain things about <clears throat> uh, sex, you know, about men and women and, and uh, fondling bosoms and things like that. You got two sisters here. The uh, sister in the north was, was bad enough and the sister in the south should have learned from the sister in the north and didn't. And uh, so her judgment is worse. Judah's judgment is worse than Israel's judgment because she's more accountable. Ha uh, having been told that she should be learning from that example. Um... Anyway, all the language here. Let's get down to verse 44. Uh, Behold, everyone who quotes Proverbs will quote this proverb. 
concerning you, saying, like mother, like daughter. All right, so there's a proverb there. You are the daughter of your mother who loathed her husband and children. You are also the sister of your sisters who loathed their husbands and children. Your mother was a Hittite. Your father was an Amorite. Okay, those are fighting words. (laughs) All right, like saying your mother wears combat boots. Your mother was a Hittite. Your father was an Amorite. Now your older sister is Samaria, who lives north of uh, of you with her daughters, and your younger sister, who lives south of you, is Sodom, with her daughters. So if you're better than Sodom, that's a problem because we know what happened to Sodom. That you have not merely walked in their ways or done according to their abominations, but as if that were too little, you acted more corruptly in all your conduct than they. So this is how bad it is for Judah. As I live, declares the Lord God, Sodom, your sister and her daughters, have not done as you and your daughters have done. So that's yeah, that's that's tough language, okay? Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease. That's the shalva, careless ease. But she did not help the poor and needy. So when we get to be shalva, we want to have the sanctified shalva. We want to have the quietness that comes, the contentedness that comes by being in the will of God and accepting His blessings. And then when we accept his blessings with contentedness, we're not all wrapped up about whether it's enough or too much or not enough or, or uh, comparing with somebody else in their prosperity or, or dissatisfied or anything. And then we also, of course, have the generosity that comes with the, the biblical sanctified shalva where we have plenty and we're generous and ready to share. Um, that's, uh, that's the blessing there. So in this carnal complacency, in this pseudo-quietness, or carnal complacency, or what's described here as a careless ease. Not a care in the world. Everything's just, you know, there you go. And uh, God says, well, you have no idea. You're like the man Jesus spoke about who thought he had everything taken care of. And Jesus said, you fool, tonight your soul is required of you. You know, you have no idea. You're like the Laodicean believers. You think you're rich and have all, and you have need of nothing. And he says, you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And, and how can you be so blind as to be thinking the total opposite of what is actually true? Well, that's what we see. So and when we're uh, growing in the Word of God and when we are asking Him for shalva, I think it's, it's correct, ask Him for shalva. Ask Him to give you a sense of, of quiet, a sense of shalom. Make sure you have the shalom, that you're going to fear the Lord and have the peace of God that passeth all understanding. So when he's giving you that peace, you want to have the, the I think you, can, you could view peace as the spiritual perspective before the Lord and then the shalva as the temporal, secular perspective towards life. You're happy with life. You're content with life. You're, you're, uh, you're, 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 you're quiet. You're not in turmoil. Unlike, uh, you know, the, the crazy world all around you. All right. I think in the New Testament it would come across in a way uh, to make it your ambition to live a, a, a quiet life in all godliness and dignity. And uh, so that's what we're called to do. All right. So it's a blessing when it comes with God's peace. Otherwise, 
It's a carnal complacency. Pseudo-quietness is a carnal complacency. Also, eschatologically, sub-point two, eschatologically, this term is descriptive of Israel at their greatest risk. You know, for a term that's, that's only used eight times, boy, it, it has a lot to say every time it shows up. Every time it shows up. And it shows up in a lot of prophecies. It shows up that when Israel as a nation becomes complacent, that's when they're at their greatest risk. That's when Satan strikes. That's when Antichrist strikes. That's when they're slated for, for tribulation. Eschatologically, this term is descriptive of Israel at their greatest risk. And this is where uh, the usages in Daniel come out. Also, um, Ezekiel 38 doesn't use the term, but it uses a parallel term, I think, that, that conveys the same concept. And we'll show that. So Daniel 8.25. Get a chance to brush up on our eschatology this morning. Since I don't get to go teach Daniel Revelation in Kiev this year, I'll uh, share a little bit of it here this morning. Daniel 8.25. Daniel 8 is a prophecy with a ram and a goat. The ram is Media Persia, the empire that overthrew Babylon. And uh, Media Persia will also be overthrown uh, by the Greeks, Alexander the Great and uh, the Greek conquest. And that's what happens here. And it's not just my opinion, uh, God says so. Uh, in verse 20, he says, The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. And the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. Okay, So you don't have to be a, a genius prophecy student. Just read what it says and uh, keep it simple. God, God keeps it simple in uh, explaining the symbols of the book of Daniel or the book of Revelation. And uh, the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. That's Alexander the Great. And the broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. Alexander conquered the world by age 30 and then died, either assassinated or venereal disease or something. Anyway, it was a miserable death. And the horn is broken off and then four horns come up. And uh, we know his four generals that took the Greek empire and each took a fourth of it in uh, different ways. Ptolemy, Ptolemy took Egypt and Seleucus, uh, Seleucid Empire was the Greek Empire there to the north of Israel and two others. All right. In the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise insolent and skilled in intrigue. And historically, this was in the Maccabean era, this was Antiochus Epiphanes. And uh, this is where, um, when we get to Daniel chapter 11, we end up with king of the north, king of the south, king of the north, king of the south. And it's like a tennis match or ping pong going back and forth. And the problem is, is Jerusalem's right in the middle. That Ptolemy and the Egypt uh, king is in the south and Se uh, the Seleucid Empire is in the north and Jerusalem's right in between, caught in the middle of, of those wars. <clears throat> so a king will arise insolent and skilled in intrigue. Not only is he uh, a historical figure, but he's a shadow of Antichrist in eschatological applications. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power. In other words, he's either Nephilim himself or he's engaged in demonic uh, fallen angel powers. He will destroy to an extraordinary degree and 
prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and holy pe- and the holy people. And through his shrewdness, through his shrewdness, all this is satanic language. The serpent was more shrewd, more crafty. Through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. He will magnify himself in his heart. And notice, he will destroy many while they are shalvah, while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. All right, so all of this is a vision Daniel's given in chapter 8. It's prophetic at the time that it's given in application to Antiochus, uh, the fourth Antiochus Epiphanes, and uh, the uh, fulfillment of it there. And then, of course, in shadow, and it still has a waiting fulfillment, waiting for uh, Antichrist in the tribulation. But you'll notice this carnal complacency, this um, shalva that's misplaced, it's not, uh, it, it just leaves them vulnerable to the attack when it comes. That uh, he destroys many while they are at ease. Chapter 11, verses 21 and 24. <clears throat> this is the chapter where you have the king of the north and the king of the south and all the back and forth and the intrigue that happens. You want the the scorecard for this, you can take a Daniel notebook from the hallway and track it through here. Um, We'll pick up this context. Let's see. Yeah. Well, 14 through 19 precedes this. Um, We'll let that go for this morning. Verse 20, In his place one will arise who will send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom. Yet within a few days he will be shattered, though not in anger nor in battle. He's assassinated by a treacherous intrigue. In his place a despicable person will arise on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred. But he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. He comes in a time of shalva and he seizes the kingdom by intrigue. This is again Antiochus Epiphanes during the Maccabean era. The overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered and also the prince of the covenant. He has victory over the Jewish people. After an alliance is made with him, he will practice deception and he will go up and gain power with a small force of people. And all of this is foreshadowing. And everything he has success in is the model that Satan employs again and again and again and again. He's been doing it throughout human history. He will eventually do it with Antichrist on a global scale where Antichrist makes a treaty with the Jewish people and betrays it halfway through, sets himself in the temple, displays himself as being God. And, uh, and here's what Antiochus does in his generation. In a time of tranquility, again, verse 24, He will enter the richest parts of the realm and he will accomplish what his fathers never did, nor his ancestors. He will distribute plunder, booty, and possessions among them and he will devise his schemes against strongholds but only for a time. Anyway, it goes on. If you want more on this, the 
the ministry or the uh, the career of Antiochus was amazing. And uh, as as wicked as he was, as insane as he was, probably um, I, I think you, you mess with demons and and it just it blows your mind and you end up um, you end up like like uh, legion, you know, living in a in a cemetery and taking your clothes off and just you just you're not in your right mind when you give yourself over to demonic powers um, for that length of time. You know, Hitler was insane in the end of his life, probably insane most of his life, and demoniac for, for much of that. Anyway, there's more schemes. If you want to read more on this, uh, he tries to make a treaty with the king of the south, and, but they're both lying to each other. <laughs> and in verse 27, as for both kings, their hearts will be intent on evil and they will speak lies to each other at the same table. But they will not succeed for the end is still to come at the appointed time. All right, and then in verse 29, oh, there's some fun stuff here. He thinks he's so smart because he's going to betray the, the Ptolemy king of Egypt. At the appointed time, he, in verse 29, he returns and comes into the south, but this last time will not turn out the way it did before because uh, now the king of the south has a friend. Uh, the king of the south, Egypt, has made an alliance with Rome and uh, and now Rome is going to keep uh, the king of the north from entering into Egypt. That's why it says ships of Kittim will come against him. These are the Romans. Therefore he will be disheartened and will return and become enraged at the Holy Covenant. And you can read this. This is, this is a famous historical story uh, because uh, there was just one, con- one Roman consul was there and he didn't even have an army with him. He just represented Rome. He represented an army. And uh, and he stood there and said, uh, "You don't enter Egypt." And, and Antiochus was was furious and and and, and afraid to, to thwart Rome, right? And so he he asked. He said, "Can I have time to think about this?" And uh, Papius Linnaeus, I forget his full name. Anyway, the Roman consul. He draws his sword. He draws a circle in the sand around Antiochus's feet, and uh, puts him in a circle and says, "Take all the time you want, but." Make your decision before you leave that circle. And so, oh, he was humiliated, absolutely humiliated. And uh, so he returns and he, he uh, doesn't wage war on Egypt. And he takes, in fact, he takes that out on the Jews. He uh, goes back to Jerusalem and, and defiles the temple and, and does a bunch of terrible things there. Anyway, that's, uh, that's Daniel chapter 11. Fulfilled in the in the Maccabean era, and yet anticipating uh, what Antichrist will do when he defiles the temple in the Great Tribulation. One final eschatological text that uses uh, Shalva is Ezekiel thirty-eight. Ezekiel thirty-eight. Now, it does not use the Shalva vocabulary, but it does communicate the attitude, the attitude of complacency. So Ezekiel thirty-eight. In verse 11. I spend a lot of time thinking about these two chapters. Ezekiel 38 and 39, the Gog Magog attack against Israel. Is it uh, tribulational? Is it pre tribulational? Is it, could it happen in the church age? Yes, it could happen in the church age. Uh, some people think it happens within the, the uh, Daniel's 70th week. I think it precedes Daniel's 70th week. But it doesn't have to be before the rapture. It could be in a period of time after the rapture, but before the tribulation itself. 
And so this is where Gog and Magog are going to attack Israel. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. And say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws, and I will bring you out and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them splendidly attired, a great company with buckler and shield, all of them wielding swords. And so there's going to be an alliance. They're going to come up against Israel, and God's going to destroy them. Persian, Ethiopian, put with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer with all its troops. Beth Togerma from the remote parts of the north with all its troops. Many peoples with you. Be prepared and prepare yourself. You and all your companies that are assembled about you and be a guard for them. After many days you will be summoned. In the latter years you will come into the land that is restored from the sword, whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste. But his people were brought out from the nations and they were living securely, all of them. Here's our expression, all right? They were living securely. They were living complacently. And so we have Israel in the land, but they're not in the land by faith. They're in the land. They've been gathered from many nations, but they haven't been gathered from all the nations. So this isn't when Jesus gathers the nations or gathers the Jews for second advent. This is when they gather themselves, what we would call the Zionist movement, going back to the 1800s, all right? Herzl and everybody since then. And uh, they're living securely, all of them. You will go up, you will come like a storm, you will be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your troops and many peoples with you. Thus says the Lord God, it will come about on that day that thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil plan. You will say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. Notice, unwalled villages. Now we're not there at the moment because Israel has got a very impressive system of walls. But they're working to get to a point where they can tear those walls down. They're working to get to a point, in fact there's a, the, the current peace plan would be relocating most of those Arabs out of there. A population transfer to Egypt and to Jordan and giving Israel a greater security. And it's a marvelous peace plan, I'm all for it. But eschatologically now we know that something's going to happen once they are at ease, once they are complacent, once they have a pseudo-quietness that's not from the Lord. All right. Unwalled villages. I will go against those who are at rest, that live securely, all of them living without walls and having no bars or gates, to capture spoil and to seize plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places which are now inhabited and against the people who are gathered from the nations who have acquired cattle and goods, who live at the center of the world. They're approaching that right now. And I think with last night's re-election, I think they're, they're getting closer. They're going to they're reach this point. All right. Anyway, Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish with all its villages will say to you, have you come to capture spoil? Have you assembled your company to seize plunder, to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, to capture great spoil? That's, uh, that's where they're going to come for. Well, read the rest of the chapter, read chapter 39. God doesn't, it's not the IDF that rescues us, not the Israeli Defense Forces. 
It's not a military victory. In fact, they're caught militarily, they're caught unawares. They're so complacent, they feel like, like they're untouchable. God himself rescues them on this occasion. All right, so here's Shalvah. Like I say, it doesn't, doesn't show up very often, but boy, it, uh, it sure packs a punch. Back to Proverbs 17 then. Better is a dry morsel and quietness with it than a house full of feasting with strife. Verse 2, a servant who acts wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully and will share in the inheritance among brothers. All right, we've got the contrast of a servant and a son. The contrast, this is point two then, a contrast of a servant and a son communicates great theological issues. The contrast of a servant and a son communicates great theological issues. Not only here, but throughout the Old Testament, throughout even into the New Testament. We've got our own application that we uh, studied in Galatians chapter 4. And I'll remind you of that again here this morning. This point was made back in Proverbs 11. So Proverbs 17, 2. A servant who acts wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully. Now wait a minute. How does that happen? The word servant, by the way, is evid. It's a slave back in slavery times, okay, in the ancient world is what they were dealing with was slaves. And, uh, you know, you got a son, you got a slave. How do you write your will? Well, all other things being equal, under normal circumstances, your son is your heir. <clears throat> your son is going to inherit your, your possessions, including your slaves. Your slaves will become your son's slaves when you bequeath them to your son, unless you free them. All right. Well, here's a contrast, though, because the servant is a believer living the Word of God. That's the only way to act wisely, right? That's the only way to have God's wisdom and application. So he's saved and he's living the Word of God. All right. Quit looking at that. Listen to the verse. All right. So the servant who acts wisely, I'm sorry, I'll put that back up there. I know you're trying to write the verses down or you're looking. We'll, we'll, we'll give you that second point. I didn't want it all to show up at once. All right. We'll get to Proverbs 11 here in a moment. Just stick with me in Proverbs 17. The servant, the slave, is a believer with doctrine. The son, what's the son? He's acting shamefully. Now, he's either not saved at all or, okay, he is born again, but he's not living like it. He's not living the Word of God. He's not making any application. In fact, the conduct of his life is such that the parents are, 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 are ashamed. They, um, in fact, they, get, they disown them, the young man which is gracious on their part because they could take him to the elders of the city of Gates and have him put to death. They can stone this kid for being a rebel against the Word of God. And so, uh, as can happen, sharing in the inheritance among brothers, it can so happen that instead of uh, a son receiving his, his lot, it could be taken away. And, uh, and this slave can be freed, can be uh, 
manumitted, is that the term, emancipated. He can be uh, given his freedom, manumission is what it's called. And in the, in the Father's will, not only is he given his freedom, he's no longer a slave, but he has an equal portion with the heirs. He, he's made an heir. He's made an heir. So maybe the firstborn who, was in, who should have been entitled to a double portion, maybe he doesn't get the double portion. Maybe he just gets a single portion because uh, a single portion is going to the slave as well in a different aspect. <clears throat> All right, let's go to Galatians 4 and then we'll back up to uh, Proverbs 11. In Galatians 4, you might remember, this was the imagery that Paul used when he was tr- finding a metaphor to relate law and grace. When he was finding a metaphor to relate Old Testament believers to New Testament believers. And he used this metaphor of, of a son and a slave and what happens with children when they grow up. Remember this? Galatians chapter 4. Verse 1. Now This is Paul to the Galatians. He says, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. So you're the master of the house, uh, you've got a son, and he's a two-year-old. All right? And you've got a slave who also has a son who's also a two-year-old. So what do you do with the two two-year-olds? Yeah. They're buddies. They play together. They, they, you know, they're doing what two-year-olds do. What's the difference between the son and the slave? And they may grow up together depending on, you know, the circumstances of your slave and other things. They may actually, they may be schooled together. In fact, it may be in the Roman world uh, that slave is, could be a tutor for your children who will be teaching your children, who will be teaching his own children. But when they grow up, so when they're children, they don't differ. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So you could think of the transition from Israel to the church that happened on the day of Pentecost. You could think about that transition, that change of dispensations, as that moment of growing up. When, guess what? We're not under tutors anymore. We're not under guardians anymore. We're we're not children anymore. Now we are adult sons with accountability and standing before the Father. That's the metaphor. That's the image then that contrasts the church age with the age of Israel. And it's very powerful. And then there's other uh, aspects that come with this as well. So we have the adoption as sons and we have the spirit in our hearts by which we cry out, Abba, Father, and you're no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. And that's, that's where the difference shows itself is when you, you, you outgrow the childhood and now you're in adult standing before the Lord. The son is the heir, the slave is just an adult slave. Okay? He used to be a child slave, now he's an adult slave. All right. Anyway, that's the, that's the theological issue there. Lots of different passages. We'll, we'll take a servant and a, and a son and contrast them. Okay? 
Anyway, back to Proverbs 11 when this point was made the first time. Proverbs 17 is not the first time that we're told that a, a slave could inherit and a son might be written out of the will. Uh, Proverbs 11 and verse 29. He who troubles his own house will inherit wind and the foolish will be servant to the wise-hearted. So there you go. <laughs> do you want to inherit the wind? Or do you want to inherit what you should be inheriting? What you're entitled to? What your father prepared for you? 13.22 A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. That's what he delights to do. He wants to be productive. Because in the image of God, God is a producer. God is a worker. In the image of God, we want to produce. We want to work. We want to provide for our wives. We want to provide for our children. We want to provide for our children and their wives and their children. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. And it's not just financial, it's also spiritual. It's the heritage from the Word of God. It's the uh, heritage that we pass on as having a priority in uh, biblical teaching. But then it goes on to say, the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. The wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. But a lot of times what happens then, God reallocates as, uh, and, and it just happens too in the, in the course of sin. It happens in the course of sin when you're not living a life of wisdom that your wealth is just frittered away and gone and blown and lost and, and uh, you know, snorted up your nose or other, other, other things, you know, buying jewelry for your mistress or whatever. I mean, just horrible things. What's happening to all your wealth? Well, sin is taking it away. And what does God do with it? Yeah, he very graciously provides it to his children. God's faithful to provide. See? So the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. Um, chapter 15 and verse 27. He who profits illicitly troubles his own house, but he who hates bribes will live. So if you think you can cut corners or cheat, lie, cheat, or steal, or make money in an illegal fashion, and you're going to bless your family that way? Forget about it. You know, all these movies that, oh, I'm just going to rob one more bank and then I'll, I can leave this life of crime behind me, you know, and whatever. Wait a minute. No. Illicit gains. If you're fond of sordid gain, that's not how God designed it. He designed you to walk in the integrity of your heart, to live in the grace life, and, and watch Him provide. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. All these things will be added unto you shouldn't want to profit illicitly. You want to profit licitly, <laughs> not illicitly. You want to profit. You want to gain. That's the thing. God is productive. He wants us to be productive. All right. But to do so in the right way, not by taking bribes. All right. Chapter 17 is where we are today. Um... We have more of an inheritance concept that comes up again in verse 6. We'll tackle that 
in a couple of weeks. Grandchildren are the crown of old men and the glory of sons as their fathers. That is the, uh, the nice and proper and blessed passing of generations and, and uh, harmony between the generations. Chapter 19, verses 13 and 14. A foolish son is destruction to his father, and the contentions of a wife are a constant gripping. Yeah, you don't want that. Verse 14, house and wealth are an inheritance from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. So we'll tackle that when we get to chapter 19. Anyway, this is the point that we made back in Proverbs, and it was the point, I just copied and pasted it from your chapter 11 notes. Family trouble reflects a wisdom deficiency and carries an inheritance consequence. Family trouble reflects a wisdom deficiency and carries an inheritance consequence. Family trouble. We're talking about the black sheep of the family. We're talking about the renegade. When you have a body of believers in a family and then you have that renegade who, saved or not, is not living a biblical lifestyle and they're causing trouble. Their, their thinking is not shaped by the Word of God. And so Proverbs calls them a glutton, calls them a drunkard, calls them a fool, calls them, uh, there's a lot of names for people that are not living the Word of God in their daily life. And they could be saved but living like the fool. Okay? That's the whole reason why we have Proverbs in our Bible. And uh, that wisdom deficiency impacts the family. And if it's the father, look out. Then, uh, then hopefully you've got a believing mother that can at least provide blessing by association. Uh, but it's a wreck. If, if either parent is, out, is, is the fool instead of the wise one, look out. And if both parents are off the deep end, man, the children pay a hard, terrible price for that. So family trouble. Family trouble. See, the, the simplicity of this would put most Christian counseling out of business. <laughs> The simplicity for this, when you have believers that are being molded and shaped and transformed by the Word of God, the, the consequences of, of walking in the light are marvelous. The consequences of walking in darkness are terrible. And, uh, and there you have it. All right, we'll come back to this next week. Lord willing, after pending, we'll look at Jacob there in Genesis 34. Um, look at Habakkuk. We'll see some applications there. And then we'll get into verse 3 the uh, testing procedures. You want to go through the mill? How about the uh, refining pot? How about the furnace? The refining pot is for silver and the furnace is for gold, but the Lord tests hearts. This is the testing we all go through day by day. Thank you, Father, for your mercy and grace. Thank you for your truth. I pray that we will understand what these Proverbs are telling us. We will accept them by faith and we'll live them out, Father. In, uh, in very profound ways. Thank you for being faithful, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.